Um, there's so many, I told you last night I was going to defer to questions from the, from the crowd, but there's so many good questions that you guys texted that I can't resist. Um, so I'm just going to alternate, I think. Um, the first one, um, I've talked a lot about, you know, go to your body of Christ, whatever. This person asks a great question. What if you don't have body of Christ people? Now, let me talk about that a second, because um, that is a legitimate problem, because I don't think that our culture is very good at relating. Our culture is not very good at intimacy and healing. Our culture is not very good at being connected. Um, I think that sort of started around the time of the Industrial Revolution, where community kind of got dissolved and people started moving apart. Um, but, I mean, you read the Puritans... And they were talking about this kind of stuff that we're talking about. You know, they'd say stuff like, you know, um, and Brother Bartholomew was taken with a grave melancholia. So we visited him at his home after services and regaled him with spiritual hymns and songs. And here's B Brother Bartholomew's depressed, you know. And so his friends all come over after church and love on him and all this. It's like, I wouldn't need Lexapro either. You know, so in this culture of people who were together in this community, it was, you had less problems in terms of emotional stuff. Our culture has created more and more and worse and worse emotional stuff as our cultures become more alienated, which is one of the reasons therapy got invented, all right? The necessity for a more strategic intervention at that relational level, um, you know, in fact, I read a really interesting article about PTSD in soldiers, that PTSD never existed before the Industrial Revolution. That, you know, if you fought in the Revolutionary War, you didn't have flashbacks to, you know, get, uh, uh, you know, I can't remember the name of the Revolutionary War battle right now, uh, Bunker Hill. Okay, um, you know, <laughs> you know, the Indians fighting the Apaches, you know, in the war, they, they didn't have a problem with PTSD. Why? Because they had such community. They came back, and when they got back from battle, they built a big fire, and they all danced around, and they told the stories, and there was this community. And in fact, they say some of the reason that PTSD is current in our current culture, is common in our current culture, is because people leaving war leave a better sense of community than they come home to. They live as brothers in arms. They come home to alienation, right? So our culture is screwy like that. So Number one, the way I look at it is I'm always on the search for these body of Christ people. It's just kind of like, I'm, I call them seashells. Live your life like you walk along the beach. And you see a seashell and you go, oh my gosh, that's a pretty one. And you pick it up. And sometimes you look at it and it's like got something living in it. And it's like, Ugh, you know, no. Sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. I'll take it home you know, and put it in my bathroom or whatever. So um, you're at a party and you talk to someone and they're like, how are you? And you're like, I don't know, hard week at work. And they say, oh, well, remember you're doing the Lord's work. I'm like, eh, you're a bad seashell, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to talk to you anymore. But if they go, dude, man, me too. It sometimes feels like Groundhog Day every day. I'm going to go, really, you just said that? Yeah, Groundhog Day every day, right? Like, what do you do with that? And he's like, I don't know, sometimes. Sometimes I just need to whine about it. And I'm like, me too. And you start finding somebody, maybe they get it. All right, so next step is I want to kind of go, hey, you want to get coffee sometime? And, and we start talking more, and I kind of start maybe trying a little bit more. Does this person get it? 
and you start farming these people. You start looking for them. And ultimately, you sort of need to have a conversation, I think, like I told you about my conversation with the guy I worked with, where ultimately we said, hey, you know, I feel like I can tell you good stuff and you give me good stuff back. You want to be each other's, like, help each other grow kind of stuff? Yeah, okay. So you sort of had a DTR in a sense. And you're talking about, you know, what kind of relationship. Let's make this a life-giving relationship, all right? Now, the other part of that question is, what would it look like for our community, our culture, to be becoming more life-giving people? The flip side of this question is not where are all the great people, but how can we become great people? All right? And I alluded to that last night. What do we do with confidence? Are we safe? Why does the Bible list gossip up there with like the worst sins? You know how Paul says, and murderers and adulterers and slanderers and gossips and, you know, haters of God. And it's like, whoa, 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 gossips? Like, how did the ladies' sewing circle get included in the pantheon of evil, you know? It's like, what? Well, think about it. If gossip is happening, then I'm not going to tell you the truth. I'm going to keep it secret. I'm going to keep it alone. And where is it I've told you you will never, ever, 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 ever get better? Alone. Gossip is the growth killer. Gossip is the community killer. People need to be able to tell us something and know I'm not going to tell anybody. Not even your spouse. Little, little, like, you know, uh, asterisk in our culture is yeah I won't tell anybody but you can tell your spouse no you can't if you want to tell your spouse go back to them and say hey you know that thing you told me in confidence can I tell my spouse ask them first if you want to tell your spouse but you don't get free reigns exception okay um, do we rush to advice do we rush to fixing do we rush to bible versing do we have the humility to realize if you're in pain there's no easy answer the people who I won't speak in into my life are people who are humble enough to know, yeah, I've tried all the answers and they don't work sometimes. Sometimes it just hurts. And I'll walk with you through it, that with thing we talked about, right? We need people who are full of grace, who understand I'm not going to judge you for where you are. Now, how, how am I going to become a person who's more full of grace? My awareness of how screwed up I am. I want people in my life who know how screwed up they are. I had this, this college student at a RUF thing ask me once, how can I grow to be more humble? And I'm like, well, that's the easiest question I've gotten all day. Tell the truth. If I told you the truth, I'd get humble real quick, all right? In other words, I want people who know I'm, I would not judge you for what you're telling me you're doing because who am I to talk? My fruit's not your fruit, but it's just as stinky, all right? And I need, to, I need people who, who can tell me the truth. Now, I'm saying all this because I'm wanting you to be thinking, how can I grow to become one of those safe people? I love the person's question, where do you find them? That's great. I look for them like seashells. I also want to ask, how do we become that person? Because that's the only way it's going to happen, is for us to be helping each other become that person and be that community. Now, another answer to that is... Um, if you're in a place where it's hard for you to find people who you feel safe with, if you're in a place where it feels like you can't connect with other people, if you're in a place where it feels like whenever you try to engage them, you walk away more hurt, there might be some important issues that would be helpful to deal with in a more sterile environment, and that's why they invented therapy. So if you can't find those people in your body of Christ, 
I'm a body of Christ person in just a more specialized sense. I consider what I do to just be systematized fellowship. In other words, get somebody to help you walk into those wounded places a little more sensitively and more aware first time through. So my clients will say, well, I mean, I've never told anybody this, and now I'm telling you, and it does feel better. I mean, do I need to go tell all my friends this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, it's like those, you know, closed driver, closed course and professional driver. Do not attempt, you know, one of those commercials, you know. Um, get to where you're like, used to telling me, and then you can bring it to your body of Christ people. In other words, with the deeper wounds or the more hurt places, there's real legitimacy to kind of getting special help in that. All right, let's do a question from the crowd, and then I'll come back to you. All right, I'll stick with these. That's fine. Because these are good questions and they're vulnerable questions, and I appreciate that. I am not going to censor the questions in the sense of this question is a really difficult one, and I'd love to skip it and skip to the next one that I think I could answer better. But I'm going to stick with this one because um, I'm going to take you in order, like uh, stump the chump here. Um, the reason this one is difficult is because it involves passivity. The question is, how do you do conflict with a spouse that is passive and does not allow themselves to feel? Now, that's two problems. They're passive and they don't allow themselves to feel, all right? Both of which are difficult. How do you do conflict with a person who's passive and doesn't allow themselves to feel? Hmm. If I was talking to you, I would ask you the question of, are you saying that you engage this person in conflict? I don't like what you're doing and they won't conflict back. They just shut down and are passive. Hmm. Um... I would want to ask, are they unrepentant or repentant? Are they going, I know I'm passive and I know I can't feel, help me out? That's a huge question. Which one is that? Um, let's make it as hard as possible. If they're, if they're let's make it easy first. If they're repentant and say, yeah, I am passive and I don't want to feel, I would go, cool, let's start talking to somebody and grow, all right? Because awareness of feelings is sort of like, um, an awareness of um, whether music is in tune or not. You can kind of learn it, you know. You don't have a musical ear, but you can kind of learn that, that intuition, that sense. Learning to listen to your feelings is a skill you can learn, so let's learn that. Um, passivity is more difficult, as I said last night, because it, by definition, does not initiate solutions. So maybe this person is passive in the sense of, this is the way I am, and I'm not really going to do anything about it. Um, it is the most difficult thing to solve. Passive clients are the hardest to deal with because they, by definition, don't initiate. I'll say, what did you think about our session last week? I was thinking about that. And they're like, what did we talk about again? And I'm like, really? You don't have anything invested in this? For real? I don't say that, but I think it. All right. Um, but that's hard to deal with somebody who doesn't come. I have a client right now who came in and said, okay, I was thinking about what you said last week and I have three questions. And I'm like, dude, you're going to be out of here soon because they're engaging it. Passive people are hard. All right. So how do you deal with a person? Number one, um, 
And this is relevant to unrepentant people too. One of the thing I, things I want to tell, one of the ways I want to deal with an unrepentant person, a person who's not willing to change or isn't engaging it, is um, you can't control them. You can't yell at them and fuss at them. Why don't you change? That's not going to help. One of the things I want to start talking to a passive person about is in as loving and non-condemning way as possible, I want to start talking to them about the cost of what they're doing. In other words, God made us in such a way as to where you can choose anything you want, you can't choose the consequences of it. And so if my spouse is passive, I feel that affect me. And I'm not going to say, why don't you stop being so passive? Our relationship's falling apart. I want to say, you know, I find myself initiating all the time, and I find you not initiating all the time, and I find that, I don't know, I feel parts of me more and more pulling away from you. I don't want that. I don't know if you want that or not, but that's what's happening. I just want to hold up the mirror. In other words, sometimes step one with someone who's unrepentant is not to demand they change, but to sort of say, you know, every time you do this, I find myself pulling away from you. I feel like this is really hurting our relationship. And maybe even be really honest and say, in fact, you know, I asked you to take me on a date tonight because you don't tend to take me and you don't tend to initiate it. And um, I kind of would like to cancel. My heart's kind of hurting today about all this passivity thing. Um, but I'm not going to get in your face about it. In other words, one of the ways we relate to people and one of the ways that God relates to people who are unrepentant and don't take action to solve their problems is God's not really into like you're a bad boy. God's more into if you do this, it'll lead to death. And if you do this, it'll lead to life. So you want to be wise or a fool? Which one do you want? And one of the ways I like to talk to people who are doing injurious things, even if they're doing destructive, wicked things, is to say that will kill you. That will harm you. Okay? And so one of the things I want to say to a spouse who's passive and not engaging is, that really makes me pull away from you. It it hurts. But see how limited you are? They might go, okay. Which leads you to the next issue, and that is some of that grieving we talked about last night. They may not be what you wish. It leads us to the next issue of, next question I want to ask is, how is my general heart nutrition doing? Maybe my spouse isn't very nutritional right now. Am I getting what I need in my body of Christ relationships? Am I getting love, period? Don't put all your eggs in that passive person's basket. Because another piece to look at with a passive person is be really careful and look at your own self and ask, how much am I being aggressive and initiating and coming up with things and saying, well, why don't we do so-and-so? Or have you done so-and-so yet? And I'm always this voice of initiation. Now, to the degree you do that, relationships are like seesaws. To the degree you're this initiatory, it's a lot easier for them to be this passive. Now, the more you sort of sit on your hands and go join a book club or something like that, there's a lot more room of vacuum that very often those passive people will start to fill in. Okay. Now, there's not a certainty that they will do that. There's a chance they'll do that. But as long as you're hogging the ball and you're having all the initiation, there's a certainty they want because you've got the whole dollar. All right. So just some thoughts on a very difficult question. Passivity is always difficult. Yes, sir.
Hopkins, it's home, sorry. There you go. Um, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about um, one of the things I feel, we've got three young children, seven, five, and two, and, and one of the things that we struggle with is that for four years we were married, we didn't have kids, and then we have kids, and all of a sudden, I, I, there was like, we just had all the time together, and it was great, and then we had kids, and I feel like it's hard to fight against the grain of having time to spend with with each other, and to and it may not be a good phrase, but some of the times I struggle with that the kids define our relationship rather than vice versa. Um, you mentioned earlier about the date night thing. We've, we've tried that, but we found that it's hard to like, that's two hours, it's an isolated two hours for the whole week, and still the rest of the week's kind of crazy. Um, I was just going to see if you could talk about that for a few, you know, and maybe some things you found to be that couples that have been successful in that phase, if it's possible to be successful in that phase mm -hmm. of time. Can I ask you some questions? Keep the mic. How many kids do you have? We have three. three. Two girls and a boy, seven, five, and two. Seven, five, and two. Okay, at least they're not all teeny tiny. Those were really hard years, huh? Right. All right, how comfortable are y'all um, with the setting boundaries on your kid thing? In other words, saying, no, this is mommy and daddy time. We're not going to play with y'all right now. Are y'all cool with that? Is that something you're comfortable with? don't know that we've ever talked about it, honestly. I mean, I think we'd probably be comfortable with it, but I don't know. In other words, autopilot in our culture is if the kids need stuff, then they sort of just take care of the kids first. Yeah. Yeah. As a mother in my office, a very healthy mother said the other day, she said, one of my kids said, I'm bored. And I said, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to see what you come up with to entertain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a healthy mom, all right? Our culture is, oh my gosh, well, we got to stop what we're doing and try to help them. And I want to be lovingly aggressive to the point that says, look, um, we are going to carve out time for ourselves. And if you guys are going to intrude on that, we've got a playroom upstairs with a lock on it. And we will put you in it until we are finished talking. In other words, there's, our culture is very child-centered, very child-focused, and the parents get what's left over. So I really want parents to be very aggressive in terms of prioritizing that. Not only does that keep y'all sort of as the priority and your relationship as the priority, um, it also helps mitigate against this generation of entitled children we have. I mean, they really do feel like the world should revolve around them, and most parents feel like that the world should revolve around them too. Like, I, I parked next to a car the other day that um, had, it was painted on it. It said, in this, like, curly cue, Belinda's mom. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. <laughs> for you and Belinda. And for Belinda's husband one day. I mean, oh my gosh, get a life. So one of the things I would think about is I would do a little sort of pulse check of how cool are we disappointing the kids and kind of pushing them out of our life in a sense. Um, number two... Um, were you here last night? Okay, one of the things I said last night was, um, we were talking about um, intimacy, the first one, okay? And did I say this last night or was it today? Having the bandwidth, the ER, looking across the gurney, was that today or? That was this morning. Okay, you were here for that, yeah. That's super important to me is thinking about intimacy. Okay, we do have the, you, you, don't, you don't get the newlywed thing, no kids thing again, you know, for a long time, so... You can have snippets of that. That's cool. But I really do encourage couples to play around with living in the trenches together. We now have a grandchild, and it's so sweet to us. We talk so much about 
what it was like when our kids were young and what we did together. And there was a different kind of intimacy in that, okay? So, I don't know, just some practical thoughts on that. The, the first one being my favorite, and that is develop more of a lifestyle that prioritizes y'all and not feeling guilty about that. Because our cultural parents will tell you you are guilty about that. You're not spending all your time with your children. And, you know, I have a friend who's obsessed with their child. And it's like, you know, I don't, you know my girlfriends want to all take me out of town. But, um, oh my gosh, you know, they're growing up so fast. And those are three days I'll miss away from them. And I'm like, great. <laughs> Yes, three days you'll miss away from them. Go, you know, and we're so oriented toward our kids. I don't know if y'all do that, but that'd be a place I would look. Right. Let me do a, let me do one of these, and and then I'll get the next hand. Yeah, please. Well, I've got an answer for it, but it ain't pretty. Um, all right, the generation that parented me was coming out of the great generation of the war and all that. And they were great because they won the war. But in order to do that, they had to kill a lot of their emotional stuff. And a lot of that world um, did not value much um, wisdom and emotional connection, a lot of that world was motivated by shame. In other words, um, you know, my generation was parented by, I can't believe that you would say something like that. I am so disappointed in you. So what did we learn to do? We learned to please the important people in our life. Okay, so I'm not making a choice here because it gives me wisdom. If you make good grades, then you get a reward. If you don't make your good grades, you're grounded for the weekend. I don't care. I love you either way. It ain't about you and me. Good parenting is about teaching children to make wise choices based on the consequences they reap, like the Bible, okay? The generation that parented me parented out of like, oh, we are disappointed in you, All right? So what does that teach you? Not to make choices based on what it will reap me in wisdom, but to make choices so I don't upset the important people in my life. Now, fast forward, now I have children. And I say, no, you can't have pizza and a trip to the skating rink. And they go, no. And I feel the strange, funny, guilty feeling. Why do I feel so guilty? Okay, we'll go. Because I'm so upset that they're upset. Why is that? Well, I was taught to not upset the important people in my life. It's just my children now, not my parents. Okay? So our generation has developed this sense of, I'm so afraid to upset the important people because I feel shame and I feel like I'm a bad parent and all that, that now we like, what does thy bidding my master for our children? All right? Which teaches them to be really entitled. I'm thinking that my kids' kids are going to be little line walkers because <laughs> I think it's going to shift around again because my kids are part of this generation that's more entitled. And they, they don't put up with stuff. They're going to go, no, we're leaving you here and we're going out to eat. They're not going to have any trouble saying no because they're used to getting what they want. Just my theory. But I think that's why it is because we're parenting based on our fear of upsetting people. Very, very epidemic in our culture of parents. How do you heal if the other person won't hear you? That's a great one. Um, 
All right, if we were to talk about the issue of forgiveness, we got to start where God starts, and that is his first question, as you've heard from me so far this weekend, is, is this person repentant or unrepentant? Okay? That's his first question when you meet somebody. And um, as it regards forgiveness, God tells us if someone is repentant to you, and they come to you, and they say, I hurt you, I care, I am sorry, and it's legit to say I'm sorry, I don't want to diss that too much, I get it, I care, and I ask your forgiveness, then he says you got to forgive them, okay? And um, I get that, because he's forgiven us, um, if I say you're bad, and won't, if I want to stand in that unforgiving place that says, no, nah, I'm going to hold this over you. Now, why is that wrong? I'm saying you're bad. You are bad, right? Why is that wrong? It's not wrong because of what it says about you. It's wrong because of what it implies about me, which is what? That I'm not bad, all right? So Jesus tells us to forgive not of our, but out of our benevolent loving kindness like he does. We forgive because who am I to talk? I got forgiven by the master of a greater debt than I'm forgiving you, okay? In other words, we don't let people off the hook. We get on the same hook. Now, that's the forgiveness piece of repentant people. It's, it's harder with unrepentant people. And that's kind of what this person is asking. How do you heal if the person won't hear you? This person doesn't care. So do you have to forgive an unrepentant person? I don't know. More sticky there. I mean, as R.C. Sproul used to say when I was in seminary, even God doesn't forgive unrepentant sinners. You know, he, he doesn't. I don't know. Um, but while we were yet sinners, he, I don't know, that gets complicated. But one thing I can tell you is I think it's in your best interest to forgive an unrepentant person. If forgiveness means moving out of the position of living defined by this injury, okay? So think about it. Somebody has hurt you in church and they don't care and they're not going to hear you. And what do you do? You like see them and you walk a different way to Sunday school. You might change Sunday school classes because you don't want to be around them anymore. In other words, they kind of own you. The, the, the victim is slave to the perp in an unforgiveness scenario. So in that situation, it's not technically forgiveness because I'm not asking for forgiveness. But I do want healing. I want resolution. All right. Now, what if that person won't hear me? And what if that person is your spouse? You really hurt me and you don't care. Now, one part of that is the best medicine for an injury, especially from your spouse, the best medicine is their understanding. That's the best medicine you can get. If the person who hurt you can get it and care and love you, that's the best medicine. But good news, it's not the only medicine. So your spouse hurt you and they don't care. Oh my gosh, when will you let this go? They don't care. What can you do? I want to bring it to somebody else. <clears throat> I need you to help me walk through this grief. Because they hurt me, and they don't care, and that makes it hurt twice as bad. Tell me what they did. Well, they did this, this, and this, and this. Oh, my gosh, that must have hurt you so much. Yes, it hurt me so much. And now they don't even care? No, I mean, they don't care at all. Oh, my gosh, how are you dealing with that? It hurts me every day. Tell me what it's like. I want to hear how it's hurting you every day. In other words, I'm going to be a person with eyes who's going to walk in and be with you, all right? 
Now, this is obviously necessary if the person who hurt you is dead. I work with people all the time who are hurting from injuries from their dad who died 10 years ago. We've got to make sense of losses and injuries apart from the perp. That's obviously an issue. Now, I'm going to take forgiveness and letting go of that injury from an unrepentant person is my responsibility because my feelings are always my responsibility. It's my job to go take this to, to school and try to get it helped. So I'm going to find Body of Christ people or a therapist or somebody and help me heal that. A better word for dealing with an unrepentant injury is healing than forgiving because they're not asking for forgiveness. But I do want to get in a place where I heal the cost of it. Now, what I also might say to that spouse is this. I got to let you know that I'm trying to do some work to let go of how you hurt me. You keep rolling your eyes at how you hurt me. And there's a cost to that. That's creating a breach in us. And you hear that cost thing again? I'm not saying, well, I'm not talking to you until you do. I'm more talking about reality. You've hurt me and you don't care, and that's a breach. I'm trying to get it helped somewhere else, and I want you to care so we can be close again. That's how God talks. I want you to be repentant so we can be close again, all right? So I would tell them in a kind, loving, non-judgmental way, this is some of the cost of this. Now count the cost. All right, But as far as me, apart from you, I'm doing my homework over here to get healing. It's best to get that understanding and caring from the perp. It works if you get the understanding and caring from anyone who is with you. All right, As God says, even, if a mother, even though a mother could forget her nursing child, I will not forget you. Okay? In other words, there are other places we can go. Thanks be to God. All right, next hand. Yes, ma'am. Mike? Um, this is probably a whole other conference in and of itself, but we have two teenagers, and as we're trying to grasp this concept, what are some key points that we can remember in dealing with our teenagers because they're clearly operating not with their frontal lobe? Um, <laughs> how do we start to apply this into their lives could you give me some um examples some fruit tell me about the kids some what, what kind of things you want to teach them repentance i'll start with that. in other words for them to care when they've done something yucky all right so some of what you're experiencing is experiencing is them making less than wise choices okay um all right, I'll just talk around that rather than continuing to milk y'all for, for information. Let me, throw out some, <laughs> let me throw out some principles. Teenagers are difficult, okay? In other words, once you get from a, teenage, from a kid and they turn into a teenager, everything gets a lot more complicated. And you start relating to them um, with a lot more nuances. And um, there's a lot of ambiguity. So by definition, teenager moves from two-dimensional to three-dimensional or to four-dimensional. And so it's legitimately difficult. Hence how hard I had to work on that conference that I was excited about and she didn't get excited. Remember the story now? Doing an adolescent conference is a bear. So anyway, um, regarding choices with teenagers, one of the things that they're into is, um, let's say... 
there. One of the things they're really into is this one, identity. In other words, what's a teenager's deal? Teenager's just a giant two-year-old, you know? It's like, no, me do it, mine. I want pink hair. It's my room. Oh my gosh, get off my case. I don't want to be seen with you. So embarrassing. Here, they're all about, I am not you. And that's healthy because teenagerhood is a kind of trial run for adulthood, okay? Because they're, they're working to move on to being separate people. It's the reason that they love being with their friends so much because they're building the template for adulthood. I mean, we're each other's best friend, right? All right, they don't want to spend so much time with the family. And that's good. That's normal. I mean, y'all would think it was weird if I said, y'all, my mom is like my best friend, y'all. It's so sweet, you know. But, you know, you kind of go, okay, yeah, Dr. Cox, we've read Tennessee Williams, right. But uh, <laughs> so they're developing this sense of identity, okay. So that's one of the they're such pills is because even if they want it, they're going to say they don't want it because they're not you, okay. So, but the key sort of plot point there is they're, they're, this is sort of trial run for adulthood. So with teenagers especially, you got to be careful about getting involved in a power struggle of making them do stuff, all right? In other words, I told you to go upstairs and do your homework, and a teenager's going to go, oh my gosh, mom, would you get off my case? And now you escalate and go, do not talk to me like that young man, and like, oh, and they throw their phone, and you're like, well, I'm taking that phone, and they're like, fine, and you know, there you go, every day with a teenager, all right? So one of the things regarding that particular question, I think think about with parents for teenagers is I want discipline for a teenager to look as much as possible like adulthood as possible okay in other words control discipline says do this because I told you adult discipline is based on the fact that you can have anything you want in life you just have to pay for it okay as an adult you don't have to drive the speed limit nobody's going to make you like Mean old Mr. Highway Patrol might come and dock my allowance if I do, but that's my choice, okay? I don't have to pay my taxes. You know, the black helicopters might start circling my house, and I might have to go to timeout for 10 to 20, but (laughs) I don't have to do it. Adults can do anything we want. We just have to pay for it. So with a teenager, I want to say, you know what? Um, Your curfew is so-and-so. And I'm not going to stay up all night in my bathrobe, pacing the floor and texting you and being mad because you're not texting me back. I'll more or less get a sense of when you come back and if you blow off your curfew. And if I don't tonight, I will some other time. So make your choice. But know that if you come in after curfew, I'm grounding you from your car next week. So that's kind of up to you. you got some choices to make. I'm not getting them to learn a lesson. I'm not trying to make my point. I'm not trying to get them to agree. I want them interacting with reality, not me. I want to say, you can choose anything you want. I don't have a dog in this fight. You don't have to study. Here's the deal. If you have more than one C, you're grounded all weekend. You and your books in a room and no electronics. And you know what? That weekend, you don't have to study then. But remember, there's always next weekend. I don't care. I don't have a dog in this fight. The point being, I want to teach them how to think in reality. And, and Because a child who gets in a power struggle... They're not thinking about reality. They're not thinking about wisdom. All they're thinking about is, I want to beat mom and dad. No way you're going to win. I was talking to a dad Tuesday, Thursday, and his kid makes these stupid, stupid choices, and it's because 
dad has always wanted to win. If you don't get up off the couch, I'm going to pick you up off the couch. And it's like, this kid's long ago forgotten what would actually bring life into his life. All he wants to do is not let dad win this time. All right, so the power struggle, I'm going to make you do stuff. You need to learn a lesson. Don't you see this? Always creates kind of this, either a compliant child, which is fun now when you're going to grandma's house, but how are the compliant adults doing in life? Or it makes a rebellious child who's like in your face, or it makes sneaks. And that is they act like they're doing right, but you catch them later and they really, you know, start reading their emails and you'll worry, all right? So the only way around that is to create discipline that's based on the same pattern as adulthood. And that is you can pick anything you want in life, you just have to pay for it. Mine, uh, I had one that would lie to us a lot. And um, now lying is a form of power struggle. It is, I'm going to deceive you, and are you, like, sharp enough to catch me? Catch me if you can. And I would say, look, I ain't Lieutenant Columbo. You can probably get away with this. Not CSI Miami here. You're pretty smart. I'm not even going to try. But, hey, Jackson's a small town. Word gets around. And at some point, when you get busted, I'm going to discipline you twice whatever it was I was going to discipline you before. So that's kind of up to you. Feeling lucky, punk? <laughs> All right? I would also add, we also want to know your heart. And when you lie to us, we never know your heart. So we do miss you there. But otherwise, you, you kind of pay your money and you take your chance. In other words, I'm not going to get into the try to make you do stuff thing. I'm going to create scenarios like life does and let you kind of walk through that. That teaches them to think. They now start learning, oh, wait, if I do that, they'll be saying, oh my gosh, call out my Spanish because I want to go to the game this weekend and I don't want to make a C. And all of a sudden they start getting invested. Once you don't have a dog in the fight anymore. Previews of our parenting conference one day. Um, Let me go to one of these questions. After forgiving, what are more practical ways to hold someone accountable? That's a cool question. Back on our forgiveness topic. See, I told you y'all would be interested in this. We don't talk about forgiveness. It's incredibly nuanced. The reason I started thinking about this is because the only thing that Christians are told is, if somebody wrongs you, then you need to forgive them. Really? Do you? So I had this woman in my office, and she's like, oh, I feel so bad about myself. Why? Well, I just can't forgive my husband. I'm like, what does he do? When he screams and yells at me and tells me I'm an idiot. I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be hard to forgive. When was the last time he did that? She's like, oh, well, he did that on the phone as I was walking in the office here. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Is it still happening? You can't forgive something that's still happening. Forgiveness is by definition related to something in the past. This isn't in the past. So, I mean, but she not only is being beat up by him, she's the one who feels guilty for not forgiving the guy who's still doing this stuff. I mean, we think kooky on this. I really am wanting to pull out some pieces and understand it more carefully. If someone is continuing to be destructive, the first thing that needs to happen is for it to become an issue in the past, if you get my drift. In other words, first thing that needs to happen is limits. We need to stop this stuff. You need to hang up on him. Know this, you can be as big a jerk as you want. My ears aren't going to hear it, and I'm not going to want to be around you. Okay, that's just reality. A lot of times people feel like that's being mean. 
or retaliatory or payback, but it's not, it's reality. If you continue to relate in a loving way to somebody who's a jerk, you're distorting reality for them. Let me ask you a question. You go into a shoe store and they go, we don't sell shoes to people with big, ugly feet like yours. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, would you please tell me about, tell me some shoes? No, you're going to go, fine. And people are going to go, I'm going to go to that shoe store and go, I wouldn't. Now, are you being mean? No, that's the natural consequence of being a jerk, is you're not going to buy my shoes. So, often doing our marriage is we have a jerk telling us we have big, ugly feet, and we go, well, can I please buy some shoes? How about now? How about now? And I'm like, why are you still trying to buy shoes from this person? Tell them you do not want to talk to them. Not as long as they're talking like that. There's one doorway into my soul, and it is always open. It is a doorway of humility and repentance and mutuality and intimacy. But the scorn me, shame me, attack me, bully me, control me thing, those are all closed. I'm not going to do it, okay? And if you keep talking, I'm going to go upstairs. And if you keep talking, I'm going to close the door. And if you pound on the door, I'm going to call the preacher. You know, it's like, we'll take this as far as you want. But you're not, you do not get to continue sinning on my watch. Now, that's a loving limit. Shut up and quit talking to me like that as being a jerk back. Feel the difference? All right, so with a person who is not holding themselves accountable. By the way, I'm a big fan of if you are a a habitual sinner like me, (laughs) is that you learn to hold yourself accountable, which is good. In other words, create limits for yourself. Like, I was in the office once with this couple, and he was physically abusive. And he's like, I'm not going to do it again, I swear. And she's like, I don't trust you. You've said that before. And he goes, come on, I'm not. And she goes, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I got an idea. Why don't you tell her what you're willing for her to do to you if you ever do it again? And he's like, what? And I said, well, since we're all certain that you never will do it again you can tell her to put a gun to your head I mean you're certain you'll never do it again so what are you willing for her to do next time if you ever do it again and suddenly the lights came on for him and he got it and he said call the police if I ever raise a hand to you again call the police 911 I want a blue light special in the front yard I want the neighbors coming out in their bathrobes and you just saw her melt so being willing to create accountability for yourself to give that stun gun to your spouse is one of the most beautiful, powerful things you can do in your marriage. If they're not willing to do that, then you need to be the limit setter. It's like uh, this woman was telling me, um, my husband always screams and yells at me, and I'm like, yuck, you know, let's talk about that. And she, uh, I said, you, you need some space from me. She goes, yeah, but we're about to, you know, drive to so-and-so together tonight, and I'm going to be imprisoned in the car. And I said, by whose choice? And she goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, he's made it very clear that he habitually yells at you. I would say, until I get a real vibe that you're not going to yell at me when I'm imprisoned in the car, we're taking two cars. And he said, well, what are the neighbors going to think when we get there and we're in two cars? I'm like, well, I'll leave that up to you. You can tell them what you want to tell them. But I'm not putting myself in a position with you. In other words, I'm creating accountability for you. In answer to your question, we have a responsibility to be stewards of our own safety with someone who's not willing to steward that for us, okay? Now, that is loving. I hope that's a piece I'm adding to your 
palette of spiritual tools because most of us Christians feel like you should just keep turning the other cheek, which is not what Jesus is talking about there. Um, we should just continue to forgive 70 times 7, yes, with a repentant person. Um, there's a lot more nuance than that. But think about 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, I think. Paul says something like, you know, um, be patient with all men, uh, help the brokenhearted, rebuke the unruly, you know, and he's got this like list of different options, you know, now with the unruly, they need rebuking. With the brokenhearted, they need helping. And different people need different things. The rebuke piece is something that would really help us grow as individuals and as a community. So don't be afraid of using limits and consequences to help somebody heal. Yes, sir. Sorry about that. What does it look like to set those limits? Um but still be a light in a dark world when you're dealing with a pseudo-Christian or a non-believer. So you're talking about maybe a non-believer who's being a jerk? Um, I don't think the rules change. Light in a dark world means living in a, in a godly way. And, and that means if I have a non-Christian friend who's being a jerk to me, I'm going to talk to them in the same way that I would a Christian friend. Is that what you mean? It's, and separate yourself from that person. How are you able to effectively witness to them? Because that is your witness. In other words, what does that person need? Good therapy is not doing X, Y, Z with somebody. Good therapy, good life-giving relationship is bringing, and any therapy is not something you do in a room with a guy with a couch. It's in, being in a relationship in which you get what you need to grow. So I have a friend who basically is chronically you know, a jerk and hurtful or takes from me or whatever, I'm going to say, dude, you're constantly taken from me. It doesn't feel good. Not okay. And he goes, what are you going to do about it? And I go, well, I don't want to do anything about it, but I can't let you keep hurting me. It's costly. And he's going to go, well, what, are you just going to not be my friend? I go, well, I'll be your friend, but I'm going to be your friend from the other side of town. Because I can't, it's not... It's not going to, it's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt me and it's going to hurt everybody if you live that way. Now, what you're doing with him is teaching him about God. You're not saying, oh my gosh, you're such a horrible person. Why can't you be great like me? I'm saying, dude, I want relationship with you, but you're so hurtful and destructive. I can't keep doing it. Now, God is going to say that to him one day. It'd be really nice if he could hear it in a smaller version from you at the brew pub. Okay, so being a godly witness does not mean being, wow, people look at us and see these people who are always nice. They see people who are always godly. And godliness looks like being lovingly powerful. That's why Jesus is so confusing. You know, on the one hand, he's like, you know, where are your condemners? Well, neither do I condemn you. And you go, oh my gosh, what a nice guy. And next story, it's like, you know, let the dead bury their own dead. You're either for us or against us. I'm like, whoa, what is this guy? All right? That's because he lives this dance of love and limits. Uh, Psalm 85 says, in the, in the kingdom, in, in God's person, peace and righteousness kiss. And for us to live in a place that says, look, I'm as big a screwball as you, but um, if you're not willing to at least look at that and try with me, I don't think, I don't, I don't really, I don't really want to hang out with you like we used to. Now that saying here's some truth in the most loving powerful non-condemning way and that is a gift that's worth more than gold
That is godly. I've had people come back to me after that and say, maybe a year later, and say, do you remember when you said so-and-so to me about that? I just want just to flip you off and say you are a jerk. And I really, what happened was, I had other people say that to me too. And I realized this is what Cox was trying to say to me. And I kind of wanted to come back and apologize to you. That's, that kind of really got my attention because I was so self-deceived, man. And, and you'll see people start to get it because limits create a cost. And cost is the only thing that te- teaches an unrepentant person. And what unrepentant people need is to become repentant people. And that's how we are light for them. Make sense? Kind of? Sort of? Little? Right. Yes? Hello? Okay. Um, I think I grew up in a um, home where it was really unsafe to, like, verbalize your emotions. And so I'm learning really how to do that because I always kind of conflict equals end of relationship. That's kind of my model. So I think what I struggle with is when we're learning to verbalize our hurts, I take everything so personally. And I know that's, that just stumps us in the kitchen in the middle of our conflict is that taking it personally. And so what does that mean? Like it personally, I don't know if it's my self-righteousness that like I'm devastated, I've failed or that I'm capable of hurting or if we're not good at saying in love how we've hurt, are we being honest, but it's, yeah, I, I need like tools, like how to actually be honest, but you're not really trying to like the fake honesty of I'm being honest, but really it's just to kind of put you down or to identify. Like I don't even feel like I have the tools to know how to be honest or to receive honesty because I just take things so personally. I don't know if it's my like. All right, I'm getting the first part that when you hear someone say, hey, wow, when you did that, that really hurt me. It doesn't feel safe for you to kind of go, oh, yeah, you're right. I can be so stinking hurtful. It feels too scary. It feels too condemning. It feels like you're in trouble. It feels like you're going to lose the relationship. Right. And I don't know how to then also take the next step of saying, like, kind of what you're saying, the win-win. Like, so I take it personally and then having to, like, say, but this is also how it makes me feel. Yeah, right, okay. In other words, part one is it's hard for you to hear it, but part two, it's hard for you to speak back and say, here's what you did that felt bad to me, and that would help me to be heard there, too. It's hard. A little bit of all it. We just get stuck right there. Right, we, okay. We, Right, okay. So what, what is it that starts to hook you? If you're, the, if you're the bringer of bad news, what hooks you about that? Why does that feel bad to you? If I'm the bringer of bad news? Yeah, hey, dude, you hurt me. You're, you're saying it's hard to be honest or? Or I think honesty, maybe it's just redefining terms. I think honesty is actually like if I hurt somebody, that's bad. Does that make sense? All right. So, so whether you hear it or whether you're giving it, talking about someone's hurtfulness, be it yours or theirs, is this mean thing to do. It's yeah, like, maybe that's where I'm yeah, stuck. Right. I don't even really know how to be honest. Right. Okay. So... <laughs> Um, it's like there's not a category for I'm hurtful, you're hurtful. Don't 
you want to be a pepper too. You right. know, it's like. <laughs> right. I feel like I'm kind of just new at this. Like I'm just, I feel like. But it's more of this stuck. like scary, weighty kind of it's bad to be bad. Yeah. Which you're connecting with. Um, so, you know, I said we need to unshame children. In other words, we get a vibe from people's reactions. How do we learn that it's safe to be bad? Well, it's great to be told that. And, you know, we said to our kids, like, who loves you? Who loves you? I mean, that's great. But what, where I really get it is when I look at the reaction of my parents when they encounter yuck in life or in me. And we get a vibe. We kind of get a taste for how big a deal is it to be bad? And we hear dad going off about the neighbor next door. Or we do something and it's like mom is silent for two days. And we sort of get this vibe that badness is really scary. All right. So you, you've moved a long way in that growth process to saying, wow, I am really doing that. Beautiful. Now, you have that injury, that piece, that distortion that's sitting out there. Now, I want to bring that A to my spouse I want to bring that to my, I mean, you're in a place right there where you would like nail some therapy. Like you could really, I mean, that part is just teed up for somebody to walk in and help you sort of redefine that. That'd be cool. Um, to, to walk in and say, okay, what does it trigger in you when you feel bad? Okay, I feel all the shame. I feel this fear, like it's not going to end good. Um, I'm not going to be okay. All right, I want you bringing that to your spouse. One of the questions I want to ask one of the questions I do ask when my wife really wants to tell me something terrible about me and I start to feel terrible is I'll go, can I ask you a question real quick just for the sake of my, you know, five-year-old parts? Do you love me even though I'm such a jerk? And she's like, absolutely. I'm like, okay, good. Check mark, dude. You're all right. Now, let's get back to the adult work. And I almost need an answer there. And that might be a cool thing he, he could give you and you could give each other is, okay, I'm freaking out like I'm this horrible person. Can you talk to me about the ways in which I hurt you and yet remind me that you still love me? I'm not just all bad. And, and even let that be something that you talk about. Let it be on top of the table rather than under the table. Mm -hmm. That'd be something cool to do with your spouse or with your friends. Um, but like I say, a therapist could like knock that one out of the park. That's a cool piece. Because what you're learning is 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 technically this huge piece of, of adult freedom, and that is that the bad doesn't take away all the good. Children don't think that way. Children think polar and absolute, and if I'm good, then I'm good, and if I'm bad, then I'm bad. And adults learn this ebb and flow of I can be bad or I can be hurtful and love stays. And that's got to be something we learn and experience in a relationship. Or in, in the case of many of us, unlearn from an old relationship and relearn in a new relationship. Now, the only way to heal that is to have a new relationship in which you start talking about that stuff and, and, and saying, here's how messed up I am. And somebody says, I am still with you. I still love you. I'm still connected to you. So what I will say to you as one of your body of Christ people is, that is such a beautiful, humble, loving, rich thing for you to bring here. You just brought your fallenness, and I think that feels good. Thank you. Your fallenness brought something good. All right? I want that to become a new category, sort of. Yeah. All right. Let's wind up. Um, I appreciate you guys being here. I am 
obviously married as well. And I think that it is one of the hardest things in the world that you will do. I mean, we are fallen, and to live that close to another fallen person is really uh, a challenging thing. So if you do it halfway well, I think you're ahead of most. So I want to encourage you, and I want to thank you. The fact that you are here says that you care. The fact that you're willing to take your Friday night and your Saturday morning, are you kidding me, and come here and work on your marriage says you care. Tell that to the person you ride home with. And tell the person you ride home with, wow, you really do care, don't you? Thank you for doing this, all right? So I want you to use these things. I want you to love your questions. I want you to make mistakes with these things. I want you to heal the mistakes with these things. But I want you to live your marriage with the complexity I've brought to it. It is complex and let it be so and engage that and work together in it. Most people in our culture are not courageous enough to do that. You guys have shown that courage to me, at least, in this. And I want to applaud you, and I'm glad to be among your number. So, go break some eggs. Um, let's pray again. Father, I am... Uh, I'm reflecting right now at um, how hard all of us have worked this morning to understand relationship, to understand love, to understand limits. How does this work with that? What do you do with this? And we use the, you know, the keynote iPad and the um, <clears throat> notes and, and we try to figure it all out and we seek wisdom and we stumble around in the dark for it. And I'm, I'm moved reflecting on the fact that you never do that. You don't have to work hard to understand this stuff. It is in your very heart and in your very nature and in your very character to know what is right, what is holy, what is loving, what is truth. Um, we're not like that. We worship you that you are. You are by nature life-giving. You are by nature loving. And... What you call us to is what we really, if we were awake, would want more than anything, and that is to be like you. Help us to use whatever we've learned today to become more like you and how we grow and how we treat each other. Um, that, that would be glorifying to you and also the richest life that you offer us is one in which we start to mirror your character. We thank you for the grace that has made all of this discussion possible. We talk comfortably about how screwed up we are. And you made that safe. We thank you for that. Help us to let it be that safe in our marriages. Um, that we could laugh at one another's idiocy and try to grow. Thank you that you've given us that. Now we pray that you would help us grow. Help us find our blind spots and become more loving and more powerful there. We pray this in the name of the one who made it possible, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.